My name is my name is David Miner, an assistant pastor here. I join with uh, Jamie Duguid in welcoming you to our worship. My sermon text this morning is taken from the end of the My sermon text this morning is taken from the end of chapter 11 of Paul's letter to the Roman church. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you are indeed the God from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. Now, Lord, as we explore your word given to us through your, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul, send your spirit to illumine our hearts to rejoice in you. In the name of our Savior, we come. Amen. This church and many Christians across our land, a few, just a few years ago, were praying for a man named Andrew, Andrew Brunson, imprisoned on trumped-up charges in Turkey, where he had pastored a church. In the early years of his early time of his imprisonment there, he reports in his testimony that he felt spiritually depressed, down, upset that God had not arranged his release. And after about a year of that, and I guess remembering or reading a biography of another pastor, Andrew Wormbrand, who had been imprisoned many decades earlier in Romania, he determined that he would follow that pastor's example and daily praise the Lord and daily call to mind the promise in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Andrew Brunson decided to follow the example of Wormbrand and to do a little jig as he sang this to himself in a corner of the room as the other prisoners watched him. what changed? His attitude. 
And you know his testimony after this was over? He thanked God for keeping him in prison until he went through this experience and had the ability to praise God in the midst of his suffering. My sermon today is about doxology. What happened to Andrew Brunson was doxology and what it accomplished in his life and what he learned I can learn. So I have three points today in my sermon. Number one, I want to define doxology. Number two, I want to unpack this gorgeous text here at the end of Romans 11. And number three, I want to explore ways in which doxology functions in the lives of God's people. Now, how it can function in your life. So let's start with defining doxology. Uh, first of all, I would suggest that you take this Okay. Uh, hopefully, you didn't lose too much of my message. I'm just going to use. The mic here. I'll turn this other one off. Um, I'm defining doxology. And I want you to distinguish it from something else that's closer related to it and it's easy to mix up. And that's called benediction. My last sermon to you, the last Sunday of last year, 2020, was about benediction. It was a sermon on that great benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews. You know that one that sometimes you hear regularly, may the God of peace who brought again from the death that great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, make you, equip you with everything that you need to do what is pleasing to him. That's the benediction. And I compared that New Covenant benediction in Hebrews 13 with the Aaronic benediction and showed you how the same themes were there, but they were now we were explained how that peace comes to us. It's benediction is when God blesses us. Doxology, on the other hand, is when we bless God. Now, that might seem a little strange that the same verb is used for what God does to us and for what we do to God. But that's the way it is in the Bible. Uh, perhaps the earliest benediction and doxology or in, in the Bible is that given by Melchizedek, king of Salem, to Abraham. Abraham had just done a daring deed He'd rescued his nephew Lot from, the, uh, from raiding parties. He'd, uh, uh, he'd gotten, uh, rescued Lot, and he'd recovered the booty. And he's on his way home again south in uh, Palestine there. And the king of Salem, Melchizedek, comes out and blesses him with perhaps the first blessing 
uh, uh, benediction in the Bible, and uh, here it is, I read it to you. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek says, God's blessing you, Abraham. And Melchizedek turns to God and says, blessed be God, who's delivered Abraham. The word bless, the way it's used in the Bible, it's this way. When we seek God's blessing, we ask God, look at us in our circumstances. See what we need and respond appropriately. But when we bless God, think Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, forget not all his benefits. When we bless God, what's happening? We are thinking about the perfections and glories of God out of which perfections and glory and utter self-sufficiency, he has overflow to reach down to us. But we're praising him for his perfect blessedness. That's what doxology is, brothers and sisters. Perhaps you've heard of uh, a description of how we should pray in terms of Adoration, thanksgiving, confession, petition. Doxology is the adoration part of it. In doxology, we are looking to a almighty, powerful God, and we're just resting in his glory. When we, take, when we bless our God, we take note of his circumstances his glory, his excellency, and we respond to God's glory with appropriate, in, in an appropriate way, in wonder and adoration. We're needy, God blesses us in our need. God is most perfectly blessed. His blessedness cannot be thwarted it cannot be attacked successfully. God's blessedness is a reservoir out of which he can bless us. And as we glory in his blessedness, you know what happens? What happened to Andrew Brunson in that, uh, in that uh, prison? He glorified God and began to enjoy him. And when you adore your God, and when you recognize his excellencies, you begin to rejoice in them because they are yours by virtue of your relationship to Jesus, God's son. Now, let's keep going on this definition of doxology. If you look into a dictionary, you will find something like this. 
Doxology is uttering praise, usually to God. That's a good definition. Perhaps you thought that a doxology means that song that we sang immediately after the invocation. That's right, too. But there's so much more to it. And I want to give you my expanded definition of doxology this morning. Doxology is the union of true theology with real devotion. Doxology is the merging of biblical truth about God with a believer's commitment to trust and obey that God. Doxology is the combination of reflection about God's glory and what they should mean to me, how I should respond in wonder and adoration. Let me say this, good theology will never be content just to explore the facts about God. Good theology will always result in genuine adoration of that God. Let me give you a flip side. Good devotion will never be without theology, good theology. Devotion that honors God will always be anchored in truth about God. When the apostle Paul was stuck in between places of service in Athens, he went exploring, doing a little sightseeing, and he came across uh, an idol uh, altar and the idol altar was inscription was to an unknown God altar is a place of worship devotion sacrifice can anyone reasonably honor be devoted to an unknown God oh there's no such thing as genuine worship of an unknown God. Well, with this expanded definition of uh, what, um, what uh, doxology is, let me go to my second point here. Let me go to unpack this glorious doxology in Romans 11. I'm going to give you four points. Exclamation. Verse 33. Challenge. Three rhetorical questions, 34 and 35. Assertion. First half of 36. And finally, praise in the last half of 36. Exclamation. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Look at that little word, O. Oh. What is it? Is it giving us a fact? No. It's expressing motion. It's sort of like, ouch. It's like, wow. It's like, oh my. The Bible includes 
expressions of emotion. We're emotional creatures. We've been made in the image of God. God apparently has emotions he loves. He rejoices. And he's given us that ability. He's given us the ability to wonder. I wonder whether God has wonder. But I shouldn't have said that. That's a side. That's a theological issue. I, 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 I got to get back to my point here. The point is we are called to wonder amazement about our God. And what is this wonder centered on here? Oh, the depths. Uh, there's a Swiss theologian, uh, Godet, who wrote uh, more than a century ago. Uh, Swiss, you know, you think of Swiss and you think of the mountains. This Swiss theologian says, Paul's like a mountain climber who's reached the height of a mountain and now he's looking down at the valleys below him and just looking with amazement about the beauty of the creation that lies before him. And that's what Paul is doing here. Oh, the depths, the unsearchable uh, uh, depth of the riches and wisdom and wonder. I think there's three different things he's pointing to here. It's not just the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, but it's the depth of his riches, of his wisdom, and of his knowledge. The riches of God, the riches of his kindness, the riches of his mercy in saving sinners. Paul has just put this doxology here at the end of chapter 11, just before the practical part of the book of Romans, which starts in the next chapter, chapter 1, Chapter 12, verse 1. And what he's doing is he's looking back over the way that God has consigned all to disobedience. We're all sinners. We're all lost without hope as the first question for membership of vow in a PCA church states. We're without hope. All of us are without hope. But... God's provided a way. He provided a propitiation through his son. He sent his son and he brought him to life again after he had paid for the penalty of our sins. And then he sent his spirit and he's enabled us to become sanctified, to serve him with holy lives. And he's put before us this glorious prospect of being with him forever. Oh, the depths of the riches of God's mercy. And then there's the depth of the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God in a perfect plan. You know, if God was going to have a good plan for saving sinners, he has to deal with the issue of human pride. And he came up with a plan that nullifies human pride. We're saved by faith alone. We're saved by grace alone. Nullifying our pride. The wisdom of God setting up this plan. The wisdom of putting it into effect at the right time. When the time was ripe, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to save those who were under the law. Oh, the depth 
of the wisdom of God. And then, though, the depth of the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God. You know, when we think about the knowledge of God, do we not normally think, oh, he's omnipotent, he knows every fact? Well, that's all true. But is that the whole story? You know, other languages, suffer, uh, English suffers in compa uh, comparison with some other languages. The, the German language has the word wissen for facts and kennen for personal knowledge, acquaintance. The French have the same thing, so savoir and connaître, and I think other languages. We don't get that in English, so we have to, uh, we have to figure out, what do you mean? Do you mean personal knowledge? Or do you mean knowledge of facts? And I think here, it's the knowledge of God personally knowing his own. The, the good shepherd, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I call them by name. He knows us. I had a lady in my um, church in North Jersey 20 years ago or so. She had a tough background, if you can imagine. Someone of South Asian heritage who was the uh, daughter of an Islamic imam who elopes to marry a Hindu, has a terrible marriage and comes to faith in Jesus. But she had not the same kind of understanding of when to blurt out something and when not to blurt it out. And she blurted out in one Sunday school class and she said, well, God has his favorites, you know, like David. Oh, Rita. God did not spare his son, but gave him up for you. Are you not his favorite? How many favorites do you think an almighty God can have? The one who names the stars and calls them by name. Does he not know every one of his beloved? Does Jesus not know you as well as Peter and James and John? The depths of the knowledge of God, does that bring wonder to you? His unsearchable judgments, his inscrutable ways, reference to Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways. In the context, it's very clear that what God is saying in Isaiah 55 is, you don't think of forgiving one another, but I do. I'm a pardoning God. God pardons when we don't. His inscrutable ways. Let's go on to the next one. Exclamation is what I've just covered. Challenge. Three rhetorical questions, all requiring the same answer. No one. These questions are, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? That's taken from Isaiah 40. And you know what? Jamie's going to preach on Isaiah 40 next week. We'll see what he does with this text. Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That's taken from God's response to Job. 
at the end of Job, Job uh, 41, uh, verse 11. None of us can make God a debtor to us. None of us have the ability to put God in our debt. Everything we have comes from him. Challenge. Let's move on. Assertion. Here's the theology in this doxology. Assertion. For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, through him, and to him. Creator, from him. Sustainer, through him. To him, I always appreciated what Jamie did there uh, for us at the beginning of that uh, confession of faith from what uh, C.S. Lewis calls the Scottish Catechism, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is our chief end? To him. What are we here for? We're here to and for God, for his glory. But the glorious thing is that when we recognize that, we begin to enjoy it. Finally, let's go to this last very short, actually it's the doxology proper in this doxology. To him be the glory forever. To him be the glory forever. Glory. What is glory? Glory is a manifestation, the expression, the appearance of some persons or some institutions, character, attributes. Glory is the expression of God's attributes. And God says in uh, Isaiah 42, he says, my glory I will not give to another. If you've been around church circles as long as I have, you will have some sad stories of people who have made shipwreck of their faith. There was one pastor gifted enormously with pulpit ability, called by a church near me where I lived in um, North Jersey 35 years ago, a church that actually gloried in the power of their pulpit, perhaps too much. He made a mess of there and escaped to the other side of the country, switching denominations, and made a total mess of his marriage and his life and that church there. Then he got back to my side of the country in North Jersey, and he showed up in my church. And of course, the question was, what happened? 
but he came. And the first thing he did was apologize for something that he had contributed to in one of the most difficult experiences I ever went through. He apologized, and then he said, you know what? I refuse to let God get all the glory. I took some of it. That's what happened to me. But this man's story of falling is, he was caught the same way Eve was. The tempter went to Eve and to Adam through Eve and said, you want to be glorious like God. You want to know the difference between good and evil. God's hiding that from you. Don't let him hide it. Grab it. And she took the fruit and she ate and gave it to her husband. And he ate. And so all of us follow suit and we want to take God's glory. But there was one man who came, the incarnate one, the incarnate son of God. And at the beginning of his ministry, the tempter came to him in the wilderness and very bluntly said, worship me and I'll give you all the glory. It's mine, I'll give it to you. And our Savior responded with a powerful quotation of the scripture saying, it is written, worship God alone. And our Savior persevered through that temptation for us. And then the devil became a little more subtle, a little more sophisticated. And Jesus is announcing to his disciples who have just said, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And then he says, well, what it means for me to be Messiah is that I go to the cross and I die and I be resurrected. And Peter takes Jesus aside and says, oh no, you got it wrong. You're not going to, this isn't going to happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, depart from me, Satan. And Jesus persevered through the suffering in order to bring glory to his father and then ultimately to you and me who trust in Jesus. Well, I must move on to the last part of my uh, sermon here and my, um, see what time it is here. Um, I, I want to talk just very briefly now about doxologies functioning in the life of a believer. Number one, it humbles us. He, God is bigger than us. And when we stop our busyness of life and come to a point where we adore God, where we recognize him in his glories and in his excellence, we're humbled. 
but more than humbled, we're given rest. It doesn't depend on me. It's his business to bring to fruition what is necessary. I don't think there's a preacher who doesn't recognize that's what needs to happen. At least this preacher knows that if there's going to be any good out of this sermon, it's going to be God that does it. That's the first point of doxology's function. Number two, doxology anchors our hope in the only possible solution to our, our quandary, our situation. I love the words of one of my Romans commentary, uh, commentators, and I'm just going to quote them. The joyful confidence that the deep mystery that faces us, there's things we don't understand, inscrutable ways of God, unsearchable judgment, that deep mystery that kept Andrew Brunson in that prison, that strikes some of our beloved with COVID today. The deep mystery that faces us is neither a nightmare mystery of meaninglessness, nor the dark mystery of arbitrary omnipotence. Well, what kind of mystery is it? It's the mystery that will never turn out to be anything other than the mystery of the altogether good and merciful God. Psalm 29, I ask that Psalm 29 be read as part of our Old Testament reading here. What's happening in Psalm 29? It's a doxology. What's the context for the doxology? I think King David, or maybe he was still a shepherd boy, was behaving like an early Hebrew meteorologist. He noted a powerful storm that seemed to start way off to the west in what was the sea, which perhaps he'd never seen. And the voice of the Lord was over the waters, the deep waters. And then the voice of the Lord, it, he sees the storm swinging across the north. And in his mind's eyes, he hears these huge uh, cedar trees of Lebanon being toppled by a powerful storm, hurricane. And then it swings around to Mount Hermon, Syrian. It's a name, uh, of the, uh, another name for Mount Hermon. And it goes up there. And then the storm swings down to the deserts of Kadesh, swings south of him. And he's thinking to himself, this storm, it came from God. God is powerful, but he's our God. He will bless us with peace, with the same power exercised in this storm. Doxology anchors our hope. Number three, doxology leads us into God's presence. In Psalm 22, verse 4, we read, the Lord sits on the praises of of Israel. The Lord sits enthroned on the praises of Israel. King James, the Lord inhabits the praises 
of Israel. What does that mean? It means that when we enter doxology, when we praise our God, he's present. And when he's present, what happens? We enjoy him. We glorify God and we enjoy him. That's the third point. Doxology leads us to God's presence. Number four, doxology motivates service. You know where this doxology is? Just between the teaching section of Romans and the practical section of Romans. Romans goes right on to say, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your reasonable service. You see, doxology is the bridge between understanding the truth and acting upon it. We call this service that we're having right now worship. But brothers and sisters, worship is more than just coming together on a Sunday morning. Worship is acting upon the truth that we celebrate and learn about on a Sunday morning. Worship is 24-7. Service of God. And this worship service now is to strengthen you and prepare you for that 24-7 duty you have to worship God. Fifth and final point. Worship leads to repentance. Doxology leads to repentance. Now, why do I say that? Do you remember that story in the book of Joshua? Scott went through the book of Joshua towards the end of his time here. Maybe some of you can remember the sin of Achan. The walls of Jericho come tumbling down, and God says, everything in Jericho is devoted to me. Don't you take any spoil. And one Israelite took some spoil. And the next battle, they lost. And Joshua has a fit of self-pity. And God says, get up. You sinned. Israel sinned. And then the lot is taken, and ultimately the lot falls on Achan. And Achan comes to face Joshua, and this is the words that Joshua says to Achan. My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Doxology. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it. What did Achan do? He confessed it. He didn't deny it. And in confessing it, he glorified God. Are we going to see Achan in heaven? I don't know. I'm curious. But I do know this is. Doxology involves admitting to God our sin. Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, 
You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God says, I let you sin so that you can see my holiness and recognize your deserts apart from my grace. What we're going to do now is something different, out of the ordinary for Wallace. We're going to go to confession. We're going to move from this great doxology of Romans 11, and we're going to go directly to confession as a form of doxology. We're going to sing our confession of sin even now as our COVID-19 singers gather here to lead us. I'm going to encourage you to uh, turn, if you're using the Trinity hymnal, to hymn number 496. And I'll pray briefly a prayer of confession before we start singing. Gracious God, we have too often failed to recognize your glory, to acknowledge it, to bow before it. Forgive us. And may these words of this song of confession bring to mind other ways that we can glorify you by confessing our sin. In Jesus' name we come. Kind and merciful God, we 